All right, grab a seat if you would. I want to welcome those of you in the room, welcome those of you watching online with us right now. We'd love for you to grab your Bible wherever you're at right now. Go to 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, as we'll be in the fourth of four, our final week of our series called Cautionary Tales, uh, where we've been looking at four generations of individuals from the Old Testament, watching their stories uh, and trying to learn something from their stories so we don't have to make the same mistakes they made. Uh, and so again, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 12 tonight, uh, but want to introduce you to the subject we're going to be talking about, thinking about, considering tonight. Uh, and I think it'll be one that will uh, may, may take you a moment to see where we're going, but I, but I think it, eventually uh, you will understand um, sort of the depth of where this story is leading us. So the topic I want to talk to you tonight um, is the word deconstruction. Um, deconstruction is something we kind of understand in the world, not just of Christian faith, but it's something we understand in the world uh, of psychology and of cognitive development and of development of people uh, and how we go from childhood to adulthood. Uh, let me define deconstruction for you in this way. Deconstruction is the process by which we re-examine our childhood systems of belief and behavior. So, so deconstruction is when we take the childhood beliefs we had, the childhood behaviors you had, the childhood worldviews we had, and then we re-examine them in light of our adulthood, in light of the information we've got, the experiences we had, in light of our current reality. And here's what I want you to know tonight. We're going to talk about de- deconstruction, and I've titled the, t- the sermon tonight, The Deconstruction Trap. But I want to be really clear about something. Deconstruction is a healthy thing that is required for maturity. I want you to understand that deconstruction is a healthy thing. It is a good thing. This is something I'm going to talk about. Not tonight as something you need to avoid, but rather as something you need to go through. Like the way I want to put it to you tonight is that deconstruction is a healthy thing, but it is a middle step of a three-step process that all of us need to go through in order to get to adult maturity in any area of our life. I'll say that again. Deconstruction is a healthy step, but it is not a final step. It is a middle step. Let me show you it on this graph. I think this will be helpful for us to understand. This is childhood. This is where all of us begin. And when you were a kid, you were given a worldview. You you might think, no, I came up with my own thing. No, your parents gave you a worldview. They told you what was right. They told you what was wrong. They told you what was good. And they told you what was bad. Your food preferences, your preferences in how you dress, all of those things in childhood are handed to you. Some of those things are wonderful, good things. Some of those things are destructive things. Some of them are totally indifferent. But in childhood, you get shaped. But then here's what happens with our childhood beliefs. Usually the childhood beliefs that are passed on to us by our parents are a little bit rigid. They're a little bit about the rules. They're a little bit black and white and there's no nuance in them because we're children. It's not because we're bad and it's not because our parents are trying to impose some sort of worldview on us. It's because children don't actually have the abstract ability to do complex thinking. So you tell them simple things. But let me give you an example of how this goes. When we go from childhood um, to deconstruction, where we start to pick apart some of childhood and ultimately on to maturity. Let me give you a few examples to help you kind of understand this. So um, one of the things we tell children, and I hope you were told this as a child, and if you weren't, it probably explains some things. As a child, you were probably told, don't run into the street, Right? I've told my three-year-old this. The other day, she was out there. She helps me put, take the trash cans in sometimes. So she goes out there with me, and then she sees something in the street. She takes off to run into the street. And so what do I tell her as a dad? Grace, don't run into the street. It's a rule. And I actually got down there, and I showed her, this is the street, and this is the sidewalk. Your foot will never hit the street. Why? 
because I know my three-year-old is safer if she's not in the street. But I want you to imagine a three-year-old or you grow up and then you realize, actually, I can go in the street. The street in front of your house is probably safe 95% of the time, right? Occasionally there's a car that rolls past. Maybe occasionally there's a car parked there. But really what happens is you realize the, the street is actually quite safe. So here's what happens for us. As a child, it's, I should never go in the street. The street is hot lava. It will kill me, right? And then you grow up and you do some deconstruction and you realize, actually, that's not true. I can cross the street. I can walk in the street. I can have a little party in the street if I want. I'm probably not going to be hit. But where do we go from deconstruction? You don't just then decide the street is now safe and I'll let my children go into the street. No, you move on to maturity where you realize that your parents gave you a very black and white rule to protect you from a dangerous place and you come to a mature spot in this. Silly example, right? Let me give you one that'll start to get a little more personal. Um, Raise your hand if you grew up... um, if you, if you grew up going to church, which I know not all of you did, but if growing up going to church, your parents made you dress up special for Sunday church. Raise your hand if that's true. Okay, across this room, not all of you. Some of you were like, no, my parents were like, whatever. No, that was my parents, all right? It was like, you're gonna get dressed up and it was like awkward polos or button downs that didn't really fit me and like the khaki pants or something like that and then like oversized shoes that didn't really fit but your parents were like, you're, okay, that was me. During childhood, my parents told me, you dress up to go to church You wear your Sunday best, right? You dress up to go to church. Then I got to college. I started to go into church in college. And I went to one of those like downtown LA, very cool, hip churches, right? And I start showing up and I realize these people aren't dressed up. And so I look kind of cheesy the first day, but then I start dressing up and realize like, I don't have to dress up for church. And then I start reading my Bible and I go, you know what? There's not a single command in the Bible that says you have to dress up for church. I go, there's not a single command. In fact, I even got real self-righteous. I went, mom, dad, you made me dress up. But in the Bible, it's the poor and the downtrodden who don't even have nice clothes who go to church. So what, what did I start to do? I started to deconstruct the idea that I was given in childhood that I was supposed to dress up in order to go to church. But here's the problem. The problem is I just stay in this kind of deconstruction zone and go, my parents were the worst. They made me dress up for church. They don't even understand. God doesn't care how I look. God doesn't care if I'm wearing a polo shirt or a t-shirt. And I start to get self-righteous about it and start deconstructing. Here's the problem. See, in childhood, I'm given a belief. And when I become a teenager or when I get into college or as a young adult, I can deconstruct this belief. But you know what maturity looks like? Maturity in this very silly example of to being told you have to dress up for church and then deconstructing in college. Here's what maturity looks like. Maturity looks like realizing that when my parents had me dress up for church, it wasn't because they thought God would love me more in a polo shirt. It's because they wanted me to have reverence when I came into the house of God to understand something special was happening here, right? And so maturity doesn't actually come from just saying like, no, I'm going to reject my childhood and forget those silly rules. It comes from understanding that my childhood, this thing that was given to me, was given to me for a reason. That's what maturity is. So I don't do the whole like get super dressed up for church or anything. You can obviously see that. Like I don't get wildly dressed up for church. But it's not just this wild rejection of childhood. It's going through deconstruction and getting to maturity. Let me give you another one. I grew up in a church that preached and proclaimed this message. The only way to get to heaven, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. Only Christians go to heaven. Now, it's a pretty intense claim. And it's an intense claim for a little child to hear. And it's an intense claim for you to process as you're a child. And that's what I heard when I was a child in church. But here's the problem. 
Again, when we're children, what we tend to hear with these beliefs that are put upon us is we tend to understand these in very black and white terms. It's good and bad and one or the other, and we have no nuance in our thinking. And so here's what I started to understand as a child. I didn't hear that only Jesus' salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ can get you into heaven. I heard only Christians who look like us, talk like us, go to church like us, and vote like us go to heaven, right? And so when you hear that as a child, you get into college and you start to deconstruct that idea. You start to deconstruct it because you realize there are Christians who look nothing like you, who talk nothing like you, who vote nothing like you, who don't care about the things you care about, who live in places all over the world and all throughout human history who look nothing like you. And so you start to deconstruct it. But then again, the goal here isn't to get to deconstruction. The goal isn't just to reject the views of childhood. Some of you have kind of gotten into this place where you're in deconstruction and you're just constantly rejecting the views of your parents. But I got to tell you something. This isn't maturity. This is. Because if your whole worldview is built off rejecting your childhood, you haven't actually constructed anything for yourself. You're just a funhouse mirror of your parents. That's all you are. Deconstruction says maybe other people who don't look like me, talk like me, vote like me, sing like me, go to church like me, go to heaven. Here's the mature place I've recognized. I still believe that there is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. I believe it is Jesus and Jesus alone, that Jesus is the one we're saved with. I just believe Jesus is the one who gets to decide who's saved and not me. That's maturity. That's how this goes. Let me give you another one just to kind of press some of your buttons. Some of you grew up in a very conservative household. Conservative, Republican, Maybe some of you would say narrow-minded household. You grew up in a narrow-minded conservative household. And then we went off to college and you were just we were awash in sort of a progressive, secular, liberal environment. And you started deconstructing all the things your parents said. Well, they said this, but this seems to be this. And when I was growing up, I watched Fox News. But now I don't watch Fox News anymore. And you deconstruct everything. But can I tell you the problem for some of you? And, and, and again, this is just to step on your toes right at the beginning of the sermon. Um, The answer to narrow-minded conservatism is not to become a narrow-minded liberal, okay? It's not to be like, my parents were narrow-minded. Yeah, thank you. Like, 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 like if you live your whole life in reaction to your parents of whatever they said, I'll just do the opposite. Whoever they voted for, I'll vote for the opposite. Whatever they think, I'll go the other direction. You have not reached maturity. You are just floundering in deconstruction. Like, you know what it goes through? Like, if you grew up in, in a household politically that you just wildly disagree with, Deconstruction doesn't mean you being a funhouse mirror of your parents. It means you're getting to a place where you go, you know what? Politics are this totally imperfect thing that are necessary in this world and important for me to care about. You just ultimately believe that it's not Team Blue that's going to save you and not Team Red that's going to save you. It's Team Jesus who's going to save you because he's the only one, right? That's maturity. And so tonight I want to talk to you about this deconstruction trap. Because my concern for so many of you is you've gone through childhood and you're in this phase of deconstruction and you don't realize that it's a middle step, not a final step. The final step is maturity. You have to go through a time and a season of your life where you re-examine your beliefs in childhood. You don't get to jump from childhood to maturity. But if you live down here, this is ultimately going to destroy you. Let me warn you in this way before we get into the text that perpetual deconstruction, critique, and problematizing is not the path to peace. It isn't. And if you think your whole life is just going to be built around critiquing everyone and all of the institutions and people in history of the world and just constantly being a critic of everything, constantly saying, well, that's a problem and I'm critiquing that and I don't like that. If you think that's going to be your life, man, it will never lead you to peace and you will always find yourself miserable. I want to show you how that plays out in the scriptures today. First Kings chapter 12, verse 1 says these words. 
We're going to get into someone named Rehoboam, okay? I'm going to show you here on the screen. Rehoboam, I want to talk to you about Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the child of Solomon. You remember last week we talked about Solomon, if you were here, and he had all of those idols. And so what did God say? I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hand. Like, like your whole dynasty, your whole kingdom is going to be blown up. And then what we see here is the next generation right after Solomon. Right after Solomon and all of his idolatry, his son Rehoboam. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had gone there to make him king. So here's the story again. The story is this young man who's born into a royal family now ascends to the kingship. He ascends to the throne. He is in charge. He is powerful. Nobody gets to tell him what to do. And this is the moment of his life where he needs to be far more careful than he is actually being. Like this is actually a terrible and and tremendously perilous time in his life, but he doesn't think so. And here's the crazy thing. Neither do you. Neither do you. Like, let me put it this way to you. I'll say this, that the most consequential moments of your life coincide with newfound freedom, resources, and authority. And I want you to understand this, that here's the story of a young man who is ascending to the throne. He is now king. No one gets to tell him what to do. And he doesn't realize how risky this situation is. And I want you to understand the same thing, that the most consequential moments of your life happen to coincide with newfound freedom, where you get to do what you want, Resources where you get to spend what you want and authority where you get to tell other people what to do. It's like when you entered into kindergarten. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember anything from my childhood. It's a strange, never mind, that's a different issue for therapy. Okay, okay. So, but, but, but that moment where you enter into kindergarten or that moment where you go to middle school or that moment where you go to high school or even better, you remember the moment you went to college and you're suddenly driving away from your parents' house or your parents drop you off at the college and you're just there and there's no one to tell you what time to be home. There's no one to tell you when to eat, when to sleep. What to do? That is a newfound moment of freedom, and I want you to know that those moments should terrify you. They should terrify you. That there are moments in your life where you have newfound resources. Like some of you graduated college and you got a job. And I don't mean like an on-campus job where you were scraping by, like a real big boy, big girl job. And you had benefits and a salary and money was coming in like you couldn't believe. You were just like, I can't believe human beings can make $40,000 a year. This is wild. Some of you are laughing because you're like, that's nothing. And some of you are laughing like, people make that? You know, that moment though, that moment where those new resources come in should terrify you. There should be like a trepidation inside of you. I have all this money. Moments of newfound authority. When you get a raise at that job, a promotion. When suddenly you have team members who work for you and their livelihood is based on your performance. Or even worse, someday, some of you, are going to become parents and you will have the baby at the hospital and then they will say, it is time for you to leave the hospital. And you'll go, you're coming with us, right, Mrs. Nurse? And she'll say, no. You're like, you're letting me go home with this human? And they say, yes. It's terrifying. You need a license to drive in this country. You need nothing to have a baby. And you go home with this baby. And now you have authority. It is a terrifying moment. And here's my point. The assumption all of us make when we have newfound freedom, newfound resources, and newfound authority is, I'm going to nail this thing. Can you stop assuming you're going to nail this thing? What, when you move out of your parents' house and now you have your own place, when you get a new job and you're making more money than you've ever had in your life, when you have new responsibility or a promotion at work, can you just start with the assumption that you're not going to nail this thing because you've never done it before? Like, let me put it to you this way. You should not assume 
You should not assume that your instincts on what to do with this newfound freedom, resources, and authority are right. You should just not assume that. When you come into a new season where suddenly you have choices you can make that you've never made before, there should be a fear and trembling in you to say, I can mess this up. And Rehoboam does not realize how bad he is about to mess things up, not just for him, but for his entire nation. Everyone he knows, he is about to royally mess up in a way that changes the course of human history. I want you to see how it continues this way in verse two. It says, when Jeroboam, son of Nabat, so there's Rehoboam, then there's Jeroboam, totally different guy. Son of Nabat here is this. He was still in Egypt for he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. And so he sent for Jeroboam and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. So here's what happens. There's a new king on the throne, new authority, new resources, new power, new freedom. And what happens immediately? Someone comes before the new king and says, there is an injustice going on in your kingdom. Here's what they describe, that Solomon put people into forced labor. He took slaves and he made them build things. And what these people are coming to him is they're saying, listen, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Like in other words, it was difficult living under him. He put us in chains. He made us work for him. He says, but now lighten the harsh labor. Like, take away the injustice. And so here's the wild thing about this story. It begins with Rehoboam having brand new authority and power and might. He's got the whole kingdom under his command. And suddenly someone comes to him and presents him with an injustice. And the reason I'm lingering on this right now is I want to point out to you that injustice and broken human institutions are a human universal like, here's the Bible. This is written 3,000 years ago, and there's broken systems, injustice, people in power, people exploiting other people, and I want you to understand that broken systems and broken powers and broken institutions and injustice is universal. I think there's a temptation when you are young to think that injustice is some sort of recent thing that you have discovered and no one else has ever heard of it before. There's a temptation in our generation to think that we are finally uncovering injustice in the world and no one's ever thought of that before. But listen to me, all throughout the Bible, all throughout the human history, there is no shock here. Like the shocking thing about any moment in human history is not that there is injustice. The only shocking thing in human history is where we actually see some justice. That's the only shocking thing. So listen, when you see injustice in America, injustice in our community, injustice in our church, don't act like this is some shocking new thing. Don't land at the feet of America or capitalism or the neoliberal technological statement. Like none of that. It's a universal human thing. And here's why we need to remember that. We need to remember that because the temptation is to think that our generation is the first people to discover injustice and we're going to fix it once and forever. And I hope tonight I can disabuse you of that notion. Here's what I want you to know. That self-righteousness comes from your power to critique the generation that, that before and what they built. That's the self-righteousness in you. To just constantly critique and yell about what people in generations past did and how terrible and small-minded and bigoted and mean and terrible they are. They just used to critique every institution. You critique the church of the past, the government of the past, the schools of the past, the homes of the past. You critique parenting in previous generations. And listen, that can make you feel awfully self-righteous until you realize this, that humility, humility comes from the realization that the generation that comes after us will critique what we built. Like there are babies who have not been born yet who will grow up one day and call you small-minded. Will call you filled with injustice. Like even the person here who is most passionate about having a just world, there will come someone someday who says what they built was broken. What they built was flawed. 
Here's what humility calls us toward in this moment. It's to say injustice has always been around. It will always been around. And it doesn't mean we don't do anything about the injustice, but it does mean we do not have the kind of hubris and pride that says if we had just been along all along, nothing would have ever been broken. We need to understand that it is a through line throughout human history. And our job is not to just endlessly critique what happened before, but rather with humility, try to address those things, knowing that we're going to do it imperfectly. I'll show you how it continues this way in verse five. Rehoboam, remember Rehoboam's the king and he just gets confronted with this. There's injustice in your kingdom. And here's how he answers, verse five. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. In this story, Rehoboam only does two good things, okay? You're about to see all the bad things. He does two good things and here's the first thing. Everyone comes to him and says, there is an injustice in the land and you need to do something about it. And here's what he says. Go away, not forever, but for three days. Then come back and we're going to talk about it. So the people went away. What does he do? He takes time to think about it. Again, he only does two things well in this story. This is one of them. Rather than answering right away, he takes time to think about it. And I want to urge you to do the same things when you think about the world and the injustices and things you see. I'll put it this way. I want you to take time to consider the complexity of the world Before you speak, let me just free some of you tonight. When something happens in our culture, our society, and our world, can I just tell you, you do not actually have to post something on your Instagram story within the hour. You don't don't have to do it. You you don't have to be like, something happened. I got to be the first one with something up there. You you don't have to. In fact, I'm going to say something even crazier. You don't have to post anything at all. Like, like nothing. And, and here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem. So some of you go, well, if I don't post something, is my silence complicity? And l- let me say this. I think silence can be complicity. I think if you never say anything, it might be complicity. But let me tell you something. Silence isn't always complicity. Sometimes I'm silent because I'm thinking about it. Sometimes I'm silent because I'm trying to hear everyone's perspective. Sometimes I'm silent because I'm not certain my voice is the best one to speak out right now. Sometimes I'm silent because I don't know what my opinion is yet, and I don't want to speak before I know my opinion. Like train yourself to be the type of person who says, if I'm not sure about this, I'm not going to post just because everyone else is. If I'm not sure about a discussion in class, I can just remain silent and listen to everyone else speak. If I'm in a small group and there's a Bible verse being discussed and I'm not sure that I agree with what's being said, I don't have to say I disagree. I can just stay silent. What do we want to do? We want to consider the complexity of the world before we speak. And this knee-jerk sort of trigger-happy thing we have to do in our culture where if you don't say something within 24 hours of some crazy news event, it's just not leading to the discourse any of us think is healthy. Like, is anyone in this room going to be like, Brian, I think the discourse in in our country is real healthy right now. No one thinks that. No one here is convinced that our kind of knee-jerk, you've got to respond right away, but it's always with an Instagram story. That way you're never really held accountable because it disappears in 24 hours. Am I getting too personal? That's okay. That's what we do. We we put it up there. That way it's up there and everyone sees that we're virtuous rather than us thinking it through. And I'm not urging you not to say anything. I'm urging you to think about the complexity of the world before you have to have a response right away. Sometimes at Thanksgiving dinner, sometimes when you're hanging out with your family and someone says something controversial and you're angry about it, the best thing for you to do is say nothing at all. Nothing at all. Why? Because we want to think about the world before we speak. We want to be a people who go, you know what? In my youth and in my ignorance of the world, I might not actually be the right person to speak right now. And Rehoboam does two things well. He does that well. And then here's the next thing he says. 
It says, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father during Solomon's lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. Rehoboam does two things right. The king does two things right. Number one is he silences himself for three days. He says, I'm going to think about this deeply before I respond. Number two is he goes to the elders. It says he goes to the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? So here's what he does. He goes to the generation before him. He goes to the generation that in theory caused the injustice. So rather than writing off the generation before him, rather than saying, I'm not even going to listen to the generation before me, he goes to them and he asks them for their wisdom. And I want us in this room, especially this room, I know there's some people listening online who are older than 18 to 30 years old, but for those of you listening in this room right now, I want you to train yourself. I want you to train yourself to talk to and be grateful for the generations that came before you. I want you to train yourself to do that. And anytime you see me use that word, train yourself, it's because I assume you probably won't be good at it. It's I assume you probably don't want to do this. I assume for some of you, I say you should listen to the generations before us and it makes your blood boil because you got some opinions about that generation. But you know what's crazy about that? That generation has some opinions about you. You know how easy it is to write off generations before us? Like this actually became like a thing in the last couple of years. Like, okay, boomer, it's just our way of saying nothing that existed before my time is even mattering right? But, but here's, here's the two, let me give you the two problems with them. Um, writing off boomers. Let's talk about boomers. Can we in this room? If you're a boomer listening online right now, just, want, just lean in with us here. Okay. We're going to talk about boomers for a second. Here's the two problems with just kind of writing off the baby boomers. That's just an irrelevant, stupid, silly generation that you want nothing to do with. Um, two problems. Number one, um, there's two generations represented in this room. Um, I think. Um, the first would be millennials. Raise your hand, make some noise if you would consider yourself a millennial. Okay, that's you. Like, okay, the older, the older crowd here. And then raise your hand, make some noise if you would consider yourself Gen Z. Okay, yeah, the younger, cooler, hipper crowd. And then there's like uh, Brian Williams and I old. Okay, so here's where. The problem Gen Z and millennials, with you just endlessly critiquing the generation after you or, or before you, is that there will be a generation after you, and there are generations before you that look at all of your, like you look at the boomers and go, they have problems? Do you really think Gen Z and millennials don't have problems? Do you really think you guys are the generation that have figured everything out? Like we've reached utopia, we're here, thank God for the millennials. No one thinks that. And Gen Z is like, we definitely don't think that, like we're way jacked up, right? But, but, but here's the thing, so first problem with you just with you just completely dismissing an entire generation is the problems within your own. But, but then here's the second problem, and this is more um, for us here in this room. If your tendency is to just dismiss everything the boomers did, can I remind you that the boomers built this church? Can I remember that you're sitting in a chair that was paid for by a boomer who in 1999 gave money to a project to build this room? Like, if you've ever been blessed or encouraged by this ministry, I want you to know that it was boomers that built this church. If you've ever been blessed or encouraged by our young adult ministry here, you're like, not the young adult ministry, it's young people. Can I tell you this? Back in 2016, young adult ministry here was not what you see it. Some of you are like the OG people. You go back to that time. You remember, it was just like a few of us. And the church decided, we're going to invest money. We want to make young adults ministry happen. So you know what happened? We went before the church and we said, we want you to invest in a next generation, a young adults ministry. And it was boomers that gave the money and the resources and the space for this ministry to flourish. Like again, thank God for them. 
Thank God for them investing. Thank God for them praying for you and believing for you and investing in you. And thank God for the boomers who go, I would never be in that room because that terrifies me, but I'm so happy it's happening. Again, it is so easy to write off a generation before us. Let me tell you something. That is the height of foolishness. The height of foolishness is saying the people who live before us have nothing to offer us. It's all about us now. They were all bad and we were all good. Can I talk to you about three ways you should think about the past when it comes to boomers, when it comes to generations before them, when it comes to the founding of our country, when it comes to ancient people, when it comes to your mom or your dad or your grandfather or the generations of your family? Let me give you three ways to think about the past, whatever past it is. Number one, think about the past with nuance instead of absolutes. If you've come to the conclusion that everyone who was born before 1990 is this terrible, rotten, horrible, no good, very bad person, and they're terrible, but everyone who lives now is great, you're not that deep of a thinker. You're just not. Like if you've come to this absolute conclusion that no one great existed before you, you have not thought deeply about human nature because you think human nature has changed, but it hasn't changed a bit, okay? Everything bad that existed in them exists in you. We think in nuance rather than absolute. Number two, we want to think of the past with empathy rather than anger. It's easy to look at the past, the past of your family or the past of our nation or the past of this world and just be angry at those silly people back then. But what if we learn to look at it with empathy, not to say what they did wasn't wrong, not to say there weren't injustices, but to say they were people who were dealing with things that we don't actually have to deal with. Like for some of us, the hardest thing we'll face in a day is like our phone ran out of battery, Okay. And like a hundred years ago, it was like four of my children died in childbirth. And it's not to say no one here faces tough stuff. And it's not to say there were never nice things back then. But that's the nuance instead of absolutes. And that's having empathy rather than anger. Like the way I want to look back in the world is not just with rage and anger toward everyone who lived before me, but with empathy, understanding that they sinned and maybe even sinned egregiously but they did so out of the culture of their day. They did so doing their best to walk in this life. And I know that's hard for us to understand. Final one, I want us to think about the past. You want us to think about the past with forgiveness rather than with self-righteousness. I want you to forgive people who are long dead. I want you to forgive a great grandmother of yours who you know sinned deeply. I want you to forgive people in American history who sinned deeply. You say, forgive them. What business do I have forgiving them? If you believe they've wounded you in some way, you have every business forgiving them. You say, can you forgive a dead person? You can absolutely forgive a dead person. Because what is forgiveness? Forgiveness begins with blaming the person for what they did. Assigning blame, saying, that person wounded me. But then forgiveness ends with you laying down your right to get revenge with the person who wounded you. Forgiveness is the only way we move forward. Forgiveness is the only way we don't find ourselves just constantly reacting to the generations before us. We let go of it. Not because there was no injustice in the past. There was but because we recognize that the injustice in the past happened because of the same human nature that lives in us. So there's going to be empathy rather than anger. There's going to be nuance rather than absolutes. And there's going to be forgiveness rather than self-righteousness. Because here's the trap we can fall into, and I want to say this clearly tonight, that the height of arrogance is the idea that we are the most moral generation to ever live. Like if you can come to me with a straight face and be like, yeah, our generation, most moral and ethical to ever live. Come find me after the service. I'll be right out there. Please come tell me that we are the most moral generation to ever live. Because we're not. We're more human beings trying to walk with God, trying to live out justice and holiness and live in this world. And to look back on the past with nuance and thoughtfulness and empathy rather than anger and rage and absolutes is what frees us to move into the future. See, this is ultimately what happens here. He talks to the people of the past. He talks to the former generation. And here's what the old men say. Here's what the old men give them. Verse 7. They replied, 
If today you will be servants to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. This is like total old man wisdom here, right? Like it is counterintuitive. It's not what you would think. They look at the young man and say, you have all the power. You have all the authority. You can do whatever you want. You know what you should do? You should serve them. You should be kind to them. You should be gracious and gentle with them. Young, ambitious guy is told, cool your jets. Don't get as much as you can out of them. Serve them, love them, go easy on them. It is old man wisdom and it is totally upside down. And I've urged you already in the sermon tonight to be a person who's kind of looking back to the past generation and not just be friends and think and listen to people who are young, but to listen to people who are older. But I promise you this will happen. You'll get with someone who's 25 years or more older than you and you'll ask them a question and they will give you advice and your immediate temptation is to throw it out saying, what do they know about what it is to be young now? And can I tell you what you've fallen into? You've fallen into in that moment where you just reject older people's wisdom because how do they know? And they didn't ever have cell phones. They didn't have to live in the internet age. They didn't know what it's like to go to college in this economy. It's easy to write them off and you fall into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. Here's the definition. Chronological snobbery is the argument that the thinking, art, or science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present simply by virtue of its temporal priority or the belief that since civilization has advanced in certain areas, people of earlier periods were less intelligent. This is the chronological snobbery that we are so... Listen, you are young right now. It is so easy for you to fall into this. It is so easy for me as a young pastor to listen to older pastors who are going to give me wisdom and advice on how to pastor a church and just say, what do you know, old man? You grew up, you were in the 70s. What's the set? That's not even a real time, right? It's easy to just dismiss it. And that is chronological snobbery. It's the idea that because something came before us, because something's older, people, in, people back in the day in the ancient world, they didn't know anything. It is chronological snobbery. And it is a pit that we fall into. It goes on this way in verse 8. It says, but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders. It says, he rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving with him. So what does he do? He, he does something wise. He waits for three days and then he does another wise thing. He goes to the elders and he asks them, but ultimately the problem is the elders didn't give him the answer he was looking for. And I just want to give you the caution when you are looking for advice on something, beware looking for the advice that you're looking for rather than looking for wisdom because there's a difference, right? There's a difference between asking your mom or your dad or your best friend or your mentor for advice and listening to what they say. And there's a difference between that and looking for a person who will tell you what you already want to do. And here's what he does. He doesn't like the answer of the old people. So who does it say he goes to? It says he goes to the young men who had grown up with him. In other words, he goes to people who are young and who are just like him. And I want you to understand this, that only learning from other young people who think like you is the path to ignorance and foolishness. If all you ever do is learn from people who are just like you, who look like you and grew up with you and are in your age bracket, if all you ever do is listen to people who are young and contemporary, it is the path to foolishness. It is the path to ignorance. Like, I just want to plead with you to have mentors in your life who are 25 years or older. Like, when I say older than you, I don't mean like, I'm a sophomore and she's a senior. Like, that's great. That's a good thing. Sorry, that was dismissive, but it's true. Okay, listen, I mean 25 years older. I mean significantly older than you. And I don't just mean like you know them and you shake their hand at church. I mean that you bring them out to coffee. You bring them out to breakfast or lunch. You ask them questions. You ask for their life story. You meet with them regularly a couple times a year, maybe even more. And you listen to their advice. 
Listen, there, there's this like pooling of youthful ignorance that can happen. And, and listen, I'll just, I'll be honest. This can even happen in our young adult small groups where we have these young adult small groups and they're amazing. And if you're not in one, I think you should be in one because I think there is a value in being with people who are in the same stage of life as you. But at the same time, if the only wisdom you ever seek is from other young adults in your young adult small group, you will ultimately atrophy on your wisdom because you need the wisdom of people who are 25 years or older than you. Find that person. If tonight you don't have that person, go find that person. If you don't know if you can find that person, I promise there's someone here at this church where if you stuck out your hand and said, could I take you to coffee because I need to learn from you, you'll find that person. Listen, I want you to have friends who are 25 years or older. I want you to read books that weren't published in the 2000s, okay? In fact, go read books that were published in the 1600s, the 1500s, the 400s. Go read books that are ancient and old. If the only books you ever read are books that were written in the last few years, you're missing out on something. If the only songs you ever sing are like the most contemporary songs and you never listen to hymns and understand the depth of the wisdom of the Christian tradition, you're missing out on something. Like ultimately, listen, if we're only learning from young people, it's the path to ignorance and it's the path to foolishness. Here's how it goes on, verse 9. So then he asked him, what's your advice to these young people, right? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, and here's the phrase, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, but I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips and I will scourge you with scorpions. In other words, the old men said, be gentle, be kind, be gracious. It'll actually work in the long run. And what do the young people do? They do what young people always do. Be impulsive, get what you can now, take power, take charge. Don't think about people's feelings, just go for it. Be a tyrant. Now here's the part of the story where I need you to dial in. The temptation for every single person in this room is to think this. If I ever became in charge, I would never be a tyrant like that. Do you know how easy it is to believe if you ever became in charge of a kingdom, if you ever became in charge of your company, if you were ever the CEO, if you were ever the pastor, if you were ever in charge of the thing, if you were ever the person with authority, you would never become that? And I want to urge you, if your first thought in a story like this is, if I were in charge, I would never be like that, you have slipped into the same foolish trap that every young person falls into. I want you to know that what happens here is he's looking at his father's generation and he's trying to undo what his father did. He's trying to outdo his father and what he ultimately becomes is a tyrant. And I want you to know that this is the history of human beings. This is not a unique thing to this story. This happens all the time. I'll put it this way. The immature deconstruction. In other words, when you're down here and you're just reacting to what your father did, reacting to what your mom did, reacting to the church you grew up at, immature deconstruction quickly becomes the same tyranny it attempts to overthrow. Listen, this is the history of the world. People overthrow tyrants and they become tyrants. What was communism in the 20th century? Communism was we're going to overthrow those rich people. These people who are living it up on the top, we're going to overthrow them or we're going to create an equal society. What does it create? It creates the biggest bloodbath of the 20th century. The thing they overthrew, they ultimately became tyrants. Same thing happened in the French Revolution. Let's overthrow these mystical, these these religious priests. Let's get rid of them and we'll just set up a just society. It becomes a bloodbath in the nation of France. But let's not put all of that over there on another continent. Let's remember our own story. Like the American Revolution, the American idea begins with this declaration that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights where among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're going to throw off our chains. We're going to be free. 
And then we enslave an entire generation of people from Africa. Like, listen, what happens? You overthrow one tyranny, and if you're not careful, if you're not thoughtful, that same tyranny you overthrow, you become this happens everywhere. Anytime there's a revolution, anytime there's a new idea, it happened in church. Like in church world, it was like hymns and pews and organs all the way up until like 50 years ago. And then all these people started being like, let's play the guitar in church. And everyone's like, wow, that's crazy, right? This is way before you're born. They're like, wow, that's crazy. And suddenly that became a revolution. And now that's the thing, right? So much so that if you see someone wearing a suit to your church, you're like, why are you wearing a suit to church? Brian already said, you don't have to dress up for church. God loves you as you are. You start actually judging them. You become narrow-minded about wearing a suit to church. You become narrow-minded about hymns. You say, why would you sing hymns? Those are just old things. You go into a church with pews. You're like, what up with this? Why do we have chairs like Calvary has? Like you actually can become narrow-minded about the very thing you overthrew. This happens in the academy, right? When an old idea gets replaced by a new idea, suddenly it is absolute heresy to talk about the old idea because the new idea is in. And listen, it's happened in our culture already. Let's just have maybe a tough talk. Um, One of the things that's been recognized over the last, let's say, 25 years um, is the ways in which people in our country, in our nation, in our history, have been mistreated. And I'm speaking specifically of people who are people of color, women, um, gays and lesbians, like the way they have been treated in our culture is unacceptable. And so we look back on that and we say, that is unacceptable. And then really the changing norms have changed so rapidly in the last 20 years. Some of you don't even remember a time where this was even a discussion because it's so normal to your life. Things have changed so rapidly. But then here's what's happened. I think we should look back on seasons and times in our lives and seasons and times in our nation where we go, people were treated poorly, people were treated badly, and we should talk about that with thoughtfulness and nuance and careful examination. But here's what happened really quickly. What happened really quickly is the same people, our generation, who overthrew all of those old norms have suddenly become the very bullies we once overthrew. Like at one point, there were these bullies who said, if you're not straight, white, Christian, upper middle class, you can't be part of society. You're the worst. Sit down and shut up. But you know what we've done? Our generation has taken over. And here's what we've said. Everyone who was born before 1990 is a racist, a sexist, a bigot, and a homophobe and has no place in our society. And listen, I have spoken to more young adults than I know who are able to just write off older people in their life as, well, he's just racist. He's just sexist. He's just bigoted. He's just homophobic. She's just this. And you just write them off with no nuance, no carefulness. You become the very tyrant you sought to overthrow. It's not that nothing bad happened in the past. It's that if you're not careful, you can become the tyrant. The same thing that lived in Rehoboam, that same tyranny lives inside of you and it lives inside of me. And the most arrogant thing you can believe is that our generation is finally going to set up a perfectly just and perfectly sane world with no problems whatsoever. We can become the same tyrants that we sought to overthrow. The wisdom, the wisdom is for us to be the type of people who say, you know what? We're going to walk forward imperfectly just like the people before us because what lived inside of them lives inside of us. Here's how the story closes. It says three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. And the king said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through through Ahijah, uh, the, the, the Shilonite. So he rejects the wisdom of the elders. He tells the people, I'm going to make your life even more miserable. And then in verse 16, it says, when all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? 
What part do we have in Jesse's son? In other words, what part do we have in your kingdom, in your dynasty, and what you're trying to set up here? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. It goes on, it says, so the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the town of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out um, Adoniram, who was in charge of the forced labor. But all of Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. This is a moment that changes human history. Why? In this moment, the 12 tribes of Israel that formed one nation now split. It is a civil war. It is a succession from the union. It is the northern tribes of Israel. It is the southern tribe of Judah. The entirety of Middle East history changes in that moment because Rehoboam would not listen to people who are older, but instead listen to people who are young. He ignored the advice of the elders, the wisdom of the generation before him, and instead decided, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to break the norms. I'm going to do what I want. And he loses 10 twelfths, like 10 tribes go north and leave his kingdom and two stay. He loses almost his entire kingdom. You know what Rehoboam learns? Rehoboam learns something in this moment. Rehoboam is quickly going to learn that it is easy to critique, but it's hard to construct. Like Rehoboam's going to learn in this moment that it's easy to break, but it's hard to build. And he's going to learn that it is easy to problematize something, but it's hard to actually produce. It's easy to critique the past. It's easy to break norms. It's easy to say that's a problem. It's easy to critique your school and critique your life and critique the people who came before you. Do you know that it's easy to critique the church? No one here is surprised that our church is imperfect. It's easy to critique the church. It is easy to do all of that. But it's hard to construct something. It's hard to build something. It's hard to produce something. Can I just give you this thought? That your capacity to to identify problems in the world is not what makes your life meaningful. Your capacity to point out problems and say that there are injustices and point at bad things and talk about how people are broken and institutions aren't perfect does not make you special. Because anyone can do that. It is perfectly easy to be someone who points out problems. It is not difficult in this world. And Rehoboam learns that the hard way. And I'm afraid some of you will. It is not so terribly difficult to go, yeah, the church is imperfect. Schools are imperfect. The government's imperfect. Society, television, media is imperfect. All of that is imperfect. Can I tell you this though? Your willingness to offer imperfect solutions to problems is what makes your life meaningful. That's what makes your life meaningful. Like, listen, it is so easy to be young and to sit in your dorm room and to talk about schools and the educational system. And to go, ah, schools, they're so messed up because they put kids at desks and they're doing the worst job and everything's so messed up in the education system. Super easy to criticize the world. You know what's hard? Go be a teacher. You know what's, yeah, that's right. You know what's hard? Go start a school. Go educate a child. That's what's easy. You know what's easy to do? It's to sit around with your young adult friends and to critique parenting and go, parents in this generation are the worst. And I saw someone there and I saw something at social media and in the store, this kid had a fit and this parent is the worst. That's easy to do, criticizing. You know what's hard? Go have, go have babies. Go have babies. Go build a family for yourself. That's what's hard. You know what's easy to do? It's easy to sit around with your friends when you go to In-N-Out afterwards tonight and you sit around talking about the church and you're like, Calvary is imperfect. Brian's sermons are sometimes a little confusing and I don't always like him and sometimes he makes me mad and then Jacob's up there singing the songs and I like about half of them, but some of the songs I don't even like. It's just easy to critique. And it's even easier to critique like the relationships. Be like, there was someone at church who was a sinner and there was someone at church who said mean things about me. Like it's just so easy to critique our church. You know what's hard? Come be a leader in our church. You know what's hard? 
Come be a connector in this room. Come build something here. See, listen, it's ultimately not very hard to critique the world, but what does become difficult is to go build something in this world. And I want to urge you toward that. Tonight, I just want to call you away from this life where you're just constantly critiquing and never building, constantly um, bashing things and breaking things, but never actually constructing anything of value in this world. Let me give you four practical next steps. I'm going to close with this, and then um, we'll we'll wrap up for the evening. Uh, Four practical next steps that I just want to give you if you've been listening tonight. This is kind of up in the sky, theoretical stuff. I want to bring it down to the ground. Here's number one. Um, I want you to learn to deconstruct the patterns of this world through the lens of Scripture. Deconstruction is the process by which we take our childhood beliefs and we re-examine them. And what I hope is you're re-examining them in the light of the Bible and not through the light of of culture. We want to re-examine the world, the culture, through the light of Scripture. So, So listen, if you've got a problem with this church or if you've got a problem with Christianity or you've got a problem with the way things are playing out, I want you to look to the Bible and say, how do I critique the culture rather than doing what most millennial Christians do where they look at the culture and what the culture accepts and then impose that upon the Bible. Like the problem for so many young Christians right now is they're going, well, the culture approves of this and the culture's into that and the culture says this and that and then they bring that and they go critique and deconstruct the Bible as if God's sitting around terrified of your deconstruction and your critique. Like God's word has never changed. It is eternal. And I want us in this room to be the type of people who say, listen, we're going to critique the world through the lens of the scripture, not the other way around. So that's number one. Know the scriptures, critique the world, critique culture through it. Number two is build something with the knowledge that it'll be imperfect. Go build something. And if you're young, you're like, I haven't built anything. Start building something. Build a career. It's easy to criticize like the working man out there until you realize that you actually have to earn money so you can raise a family and love them and put away money. Go build a career. Go build a ministry. If you're frustrated with the small groups ministry here at this church, Sarah Sarwinski is sitting right there and she would love for you to walk up after and say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I want to be a small group leader here. Build something. Do something. Build a family. Super easy to criticize your family of origin and there probably are good criticisms. You know what you can go do? Get married, have babies, and do it the right way. And and then realize that you're gonna be imperfect just like your parents are, right? A company, a division, a project, a team. Super easy to criticize corporate America until you realize that corporate America is just all of the companies that made the clothes that are on your back anyway, so you might as well go and build something the right way. You can criticize a political system until you realize that people actually have to make decisions and politics isn't easy like you see on television. It's actually hard. You build an independent worldview. You actually build something worthy of this world knowing it's going to be imperfect. Number three, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know my deep concern for people in this church is? I think some of you come in and you think this is good. Maybe you've never been to a church before. Maybe you've never been to a church like this before. You come in, you think this is good. And you're here for a little while and you think it's good. But then after a few months, you realize it's not perfect. And if you're new to us, like super new to us, I'll just pop the bubble now. We are not perfect. But hear me. We got room for one more imperfect person if you want to join us, right? We got room for one more if you want to lean in. Because listen, with church, so many people do this. They think Jesus is perfect. And that is true. So they expect the church to be perfect. And they let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Listen, you're never going to find a perfect church. And if what you do every time a church bothers you or bugs you or challenges you or doesn't align with some position you have or doesn't make you feel the way you want to feel, if you leave that church and go find a new church, you will hop from church to church. And ultimately what happens in my experience is you go from one church to another church. And usually by the third church, you bail on church altogether. Why? you made the perfect the enemy of the good. Embrace the good. There's just good in this world. 
And things don't have to be perfect in order for you to lean in on them forever. Lean in with our church, not because we're perfect, but because we're following after the one who is. Lean in, help us, serve here, be a part of it. If there's something broken here at our church, come help us fix it rather than just endlessly critiquing it. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And then final thing, our our band will make their way up, is I need you to remember this, that perfection doesn't come until Jesus does. Like perfection isn't going to come into this world until Jesus comes into this world. But the great belief of the Christian faith, the blessed hope of the Christian church is that there will come a day where Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. He will crack the sky and every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, he will defeat all evil, all injustice, all systems that are broken, and he will usher in an eternity that is perfect beyond imagine. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. And so what do we do? We remember that the world just isn't going to be perfect. Your spouse isn't going to be perfect. Listen to me. This is going to sound crazy. Your children won't be perfect. Your church won't be perfect. Your business won't be perfect. Your school won't be perfect. And certainly your government and your media will not be perfect, okay? It will not be perfect until Jesus comes. But here's what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 51, here's the scripture I'll close with. It says this, Paul says, this. He says, listen, I will tell you a mystery. You want to hear something crazy? Here's what he's going to tell us. He says, we will not all sleep but we will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the last trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then what will be said, what was written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory, which is a real complicated way of saying Jesus is going to return one day in a flash, in a twinkle of an eye, and everything about human history will change in a moment. It says in verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, for he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after this exalted rhetoric that the victory is ours in Jesus, and Jesus is coming back, and perfection happens when Jesus comes, he does not then go on to say, therefore, just wait around and be mad about the world until Jesus comes. He doesn't say Jesus is coming back, so just complain and criticize and problematize and critique everything until Jesus comes back. Then it'll be perfect. No, here's what he says. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. In other words, Jesus is coming back. And everything, every act of your hands, every act of your life until that moment will be imperfect. But when Jesus returns, perfection comes. But the great command of the scripture is not sit around and do nothing and complain about the world. It is to do something knowing that nothing you have ever done for the Lord is ever in vain. In the great mystery of the gospel, in the great mystery of Christ's return, your good acts, the way you build something, however imperfect it is, makes it into the eternity that God has for us. It was never in vain. It was never a waste. So rather than being the person who deconstructs, criticizes, and problematizes the world, build something. Until Jesus comes back, you'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the series where we've gotten a look at these four men, their errors, their mistakes, the ways they blew up their lives. And God, I just pray a special protection and blessing over this crew here. May it never be said of us that we blow up our lives on any of these things. May it never be said of us that we are the type of people who fall into the same pitfalls. Warn us, God, deep in our hearts. Help us to be the type of people who are faithful to you until you come back. 
And God, we long for that day. We watch the news and we long for that day. We see injustice and we long for that day. We see what's happening in this world. We long for that day when you come back. So Jesus, come back quickly, we pray. Come take your church home. Come make all things new. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people agreed and said real loud, amen.